everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Siwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Things are okay so far on my end. School is ending soon and the temperature is getting very hot and humid very quickly, especially as summer approaches and especially in southern China. My Chinese is slowly getting better and I have a few shows planned for the upcoming months, so I have to keep working on my videos and projects as the deadline approaches. I'm also doing a remote residency via Rogers Art Loft in Las Vegas in the coming summer, as well as another residency in Shanghai. I'll keep you updated about any upcoming events as they happen. But for today, I have a really wonderful chat with Adelaide Jekade, a Ghanaian-American interdisciplinary artist who grew up in South Florida and is now based in Pittsburgh. Her work has been exhibited throughout the U.S., Europe, and Africa, and she has been at residencies such as the Norton Museum of Art in West Palm Beach, Florida, Oseduro in Accra, Ghana, Thread, a project of the Joseph Annie Albers Foundation in Senegal, and many more. Adelaide employs different materials, textiles, traditions, and notions of authenticity to investigate notions of belonging, migration and location, and hybrid identities. Her work is a contemplation of the forces of history, experience, and location, as well as how they work together to tell a story, essentially of longing as a state of being. I was able to ask Adelaide more about these topics, along with the different histories of the textiles she uses, the idea of getting ready for grad school, and figuring out how to work at residencies. As a side note, I was introduced to Adelaide and her partner, Lyndon, through her brother, Zachariah, who I know through my undergrad. I'm so amazed at how small and interconnected the world can be, and not just in the arts, but on our tiny little earth. It is my hope that we can all realize this sooner than later, before it is too late. Anyway, take care, stay safe, and I hope you enjoy this. Um, I'm not really a schedule type of person, but in general, I start my day with a Spanish lesson. Just a conversation. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, since I'm, I've been learning Spanish. What are you, what are you using? Um, there's this website, italki. Okay. For language learning. And you can take like structured classes or just have kind of casual conversations like I do with yeah. community, community teachers. Nice. And yeah, so I was wondering if you could very quickly talk a bit about, you know, your origin story, sort of where you grew up and then how you slowly entered into ours. Sure. I'm from South Florida and... My father is from Ghana, and he came to the U.S. after he met my mother. Um, they met each other in Ghana when she was a Peace Corps volunteer, and he wanted to live somewhere warm. I think my mom did, too. She grew up in, in Ohio, but they ended up in Florida <laughs> at the university, <laughs> the University of Florida. And then I spent my most of my childhood in South Florida, except for two years when we lived in northern Nigeria. Uh-huh. After, after high school, I went to Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, and after I graduated, I didn't know quite what to do. I had applied to one graduate program for creative writing because when I was in art school, I got interested in writing and minored in literature. Uh-huh. And then when I was thinking about taking on more debt, I deferred my admission. 
Um, and so I, I found out about a working holiday visa in the UK. It was for Americans that had recently been students. Like if you had been a student within the past six months, then you could yeah. apply for permission to work. And That's so a great deal. I, yeah, it really is. And I don't think that particular program exists anymore. It's called BUNAC, like British University, something North America something. Uh-huh. And so I went there at first with a friend, a friend uh, decided she wanted to come with me. I was going to go by myself yeah. and then part way through, through she left. So I ended up being there alone and I worked for six months, mostly in a movie theater. I, at first I was working as a telemarketer, but it was horrible. And they made us dress, <laughs> even though we were in a basement, you know, in a basement call center, we still had to dress as if we were like, really? public facing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so after six months there, I had spent a lot of time in the library and I was really interested in traveling, but of course, like I didn't know how to afford to travel. And I read about a working holiday in New Zealand that lasted for a year. And uh-huh. I asked my partner, Lyndon was like, do you want to come to New Zealand with me? And he was like, why not? Like he used to say like a job ain't nothing but work. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. so you might as well just, you know, work any, if you're going to have some crappy job, then you might as well be an adventure. So we planned to go for one year, but we ended up staying there for two years. And I worked in textile factories and in agriculture and the juice bar, catering company. The, the whole shebang. A whole shebang, like 15 over two years. Wow. Yeah. Were your parents worried about you during your uncertainty of travel and so on? I don't know. I don't think they were that worried because I wasn't alone, but also they were two people who had left home, left yeah. the country at some point. So yeah. they understood the impulse. What do your parents do? My dad is, well, they're both retired now, but my dad was an agricultural engineer and he uh-huh. worked for a company that designed and they actually had a, quite a few inventions, um, water pumps. Okay. And his specific area that he worked in was, at first it was just West Africa, but then expanded to other parts of Africa as well. And at one point moved to Zimbabwe because his company was going to open a factory there. And that's Mm -hmm. actually why we lived in Nigeria. They opened a factory in Northern Nigeria and they had a lot of projects there. Yeah. And my mom, originally she had studied sociology. Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And she worked for a while for a newspaper, doing something with computers in the 80s, back when computers were like the size of a room. Yeah, yeah. But then she had some kids. (laughs) And she mostly ended up working, her and my dad worked together. They had like a side company, an export import company. I think Uh mostly export, you know, like people in West Africa would want a SUV or something and then they would arrange for the shipment and all of that and get paid for that. Okay. So like, you know, how did you end up deciding to go to MICA for art? And then like, what were your parents, you know, how how do they think, feel about you going into this strange art field that we are in? (laughs) Yeah, my mom was always encouraging. She saw from a young age that I was really into art. And she, instead of sending me to, well, they did make me go to some sports summer camps, but there was a museum kind of like in the next town over. And sometimes she would send me to classes there. And one time I won a class, like I won a coloring contest. And oh, I got okay. A class. Uh-huh. And the into it. He was like, why don't you be a doctor? And then, you know, in your spare time, you can paint or whatever. And he even had a friend who was a doctor and did that. And he's like, see, you could be like him. He'd always come with a new idea. He's like, now I think you should be a lawyer. And then another time I was, you know what? You'd be a great dentist. <laughs> and there's just always some different idea of what I should be doing. Yeah. 
how I ended up at MICA is a representative came to my high school. And I think it's the only school that visited us. Maybe Ringling visited us just because okay. my school wasn't, it's not one of these schools. It's like my high school wasn't known for some high schools in South Florida that have magnet programs and yeah. they have a pipeline to MICA or those kind of schools. But someone in the year ahead of me had gone to MICA and then this representative came and he looked at our portfolios and talked to us. And my teacher was all about MICA because they had, I think they had paid for her to come visit or something. So she was okay. just like, you guys need to be there. Yeah. So it ended up being four, a group of four of us went. Um, yeah. But Micah offered me a good financial package compared to some other places. And I didn't want to go to a state school. My sister had gone to Cornell and I had visited her and I had like, it opened up my mind to the whole world outside of my limited scope of yeah. Florida. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I definitely wanted to leave the state. I wanted to live somewhere where you could walk around like that. That idea to me was so appealing because in Florida. It's yeah. Everything's cars. Country. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you like yeah. Florida? to visit it's It's a strange it's a strange funny place i think it is strange i spent some time there last year right before the pandemic i was doing a residency at the norton museum of art in west palm beach okay okay. yeah it was nice to be there temporarily you know to be near the beach and have nice weather in the winter and and ride a bike around in the sun but long term is not the place for me yeah i was there for also residency and i made and i'm making a piece about the the florida man and i Created a whole mythology about that. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Man, famous around the world. Uh, Famous (laughs) around the world. Yeah, yeah. So you were in uh, New Zealand, and then you've been traveling around a lot. And so I assume you know you spent your time maybe in New Zealand figuring things out. I mean, I also did my own traveling, doing these random jobs that weren't really related, and I kind of view that as like incubation time to figure out what I wanted to do. And so yeah, I was curious. How did you get pulled back into, you know, art, getting, going back to grad school for arts? Because those are also, like you said, big decisions to make. And also depending on grad school you go to, taking on more debt, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so there were eight years between my undergraduate degree and when I started grad school. And the whole time I just was really resistant. Like um, Lyndon's stepmother and father were really into the idea of us going to grad school. They're like, all the young artists we see went to grad school and that's what you have to do to be successful. We are so annoyed. We're just like, leave us alone. You know, like you're just saying all that, but we're the ones who'll have debt. So don't tell us yeah. what to do. Yeah. And I had a professor at Micah who, Susie Brandt, who had mentioned, you know, just casually one day when she overheard some of us talking about what we're going to do after we graduate. We were all worried about debt. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, I'm like scared to see how much it's going to be at the end. And she walked by and said, well, you could always just wait until you're good enough to get a full ride somewhere. And so that just stuck mm. in my head. And I was like, what does that mean? Like good enough to get a full <laughs> ride. <laughs> so when I, like Lyndon, my partner Lyndon went to graduate school first. And when he was going to school, we had sat down together. We made a chart. We came up with this process of deciding like which schools he was going to apply to. And there had to be the possibility for funding. Because we weren't making, we were kind of like eating by, we were living in Portland, the city was becoming more expensive and working jobs that we, you know, we didn't want to spend our lives working those jobs. So we're like, we got to somehow be able to do this, but not come out worse for it. Mm -hmm. And so I remember we had a little piece of paper on the wall next to the desk and it had things to do and the scholarships to apply to. Yeah. and the deadlines and everything. And so he applied for the Chancellor's Graduate Fellowship at Washington University. And then he went there and visited and he, I, I gave him like a little video camera that I had gotten that year. And I was uh-huh. like, film, film it so I can see, because I would have to decide, you know, like moving there without seeing it. Uh-huh. And so he came back and he was excited and showed me the video and 
I was like, okay, let's do it. It was like pre-iPhone when you could just <laughs> yeah, take exactly. a video and send it immediately. Exactly. And like choosing an apartment from afar and then just showing up in St. Louis and like dragging bags down the street. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, I saw his experience and I got to go to all the artist talks and I got to see the studios and met, you know, other artists and, and started to focus more on making a portfolio to apply to graduate school. And I wanted to go, I applied to two schools in Philadelphia Okay. And I got into both of them and I really wanted to go to Penn, but Washington University had the Chancellor's Fellowship. And when I got, got that, it. It, mm-hmm. and so I realized I would not have any debt. And what ended up happening is I actually was able to pay off my undergrad debt. So yeah, I made the decision based on a mixture of, I mean, it's a great school and great facilities. We already lived there. We already had friends. Yeah. Yeah. And I felt like I had an, you know, like I had an advantage having lived there two years already Yeah, in the city. I could just leap into it and I knew what I wanted. You know, I knew like, for instance, I wanted to take a language class. One of my advisors was like, you need to think about what you're doing while you're here and why you're doing it. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I want to take a free language class. Oh, did you take Spanish? I took Portuguese. Oh, oh okay. So do you, do you know yeah. Portuguese? Now, no, because I didn't practice. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm I'm, de- I'm determined for the for the not the same thing to happen with. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, it, you know, before graduate school, I had read a lot of blogs where people talk about decision making for how they choose where to go. And yeah, it's really important. That, yeah. And one of the things they said was pick a place where you plan to stay afterwards for a while because mm-hmm. you're not going to be unmoored. And then just kind of like a lot of people go back to the town that they had lived in before and then don't know how to insert themselves into that art world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was something I kept in. That's actually why I wanted to go to Philadelphia because I was like, that's where I would prefer to yeah. be. But yeah, it yeah. ended up being great being in St. Louis because like Lyndon already had his community. Those people were my friends as well. And you know, there's just years and years of friendship and different opportunities and different things that came up that really started, I would say, started our careers there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I, I feel a little jealous because I feel like <laughs> you had a nice guide with Lyndon because he, he had, you know, done the whole process and showed you. Whereas I remember when I was a plan, I was like, I have no idea what I'm sort of doing. <laughs> yeah, especially if it's been, been a while and you've been out of institutions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, when you enter grad school, I guess, you know, you mentioned like when you went to St. Louis, you you were working a portfolio. So when you, while you were in like New Zealand and then Portland after, were you making work or did you not kind of, did you sort of get back into work after you went to St. Louis? And then how did your work, you know, develop or change in grad school? Mm-hmm. I got back into making work in St. Louis when I was in, so the whole point from graduating from MICA up until deciding that I was going to pursue art again, I was actually pursuing writing. So I was an intern at Portland Spaces Magazine and Portland Monthly Magazine. Uh, and I was an intern for idealist.org. And I actually wrote about, search and wrote about getting your graduate degree abroad, which uh-huh. is what I thought I would do. But uh-huh. in the end, I couldn't figure out how to make it work financially. So I never ended up applying to any schools abroad. And then in graduate school, at first it was just kind of like an adventure and just exploring whatever topic came to mind, yeah, yeah. not really caring how it all fit, uh, fit together. Yeah. But as time went on, the type of conversations that I was having in my studio, a lot of them had to do with my identity. Like I would try to talk about my work and then the visiting artist or the visiting critic would start asking me like, where's your name from? And you speak the language and oh, how did your parents meet? And it would just always be like this half an hour thing of explaining yeah, who, who I Yeah, am. yeah, yeah. Kind of like here. For them. <laughs> <laughs> but except this is like, you know, this is wanted. This is like, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And so I realized that I could use the, the topics that people were interested in to get them to have to face other things that I wanted them to see uh... or to learn. So like, for instance, people would say in my program would say little comments about like one person said, oh, we don't have racism anymore in the U.S. because now we have a black uh -huh. president because it was uh -huh. during Obama. Obama yeah. And sometimes I just sit with ideas for a while and then later they end up coming, becoming a project. Yeah. And so um, in response to that, I made this book that was basically it's the shape of a house and the front is, is embossed. It's all white. It's embossed with the text neighbor. And then when you hold the book, you feel that there's indentations on the back. So it makes you turn it over uh -huh. and you see that there's two eye sockets and then uh -huh. the word hood. So if you look at it one way, it's a little white house. And if you flip it the other way, then mm. it's like a Klansman's hood. Yeah, yeah. hood. And it was just filled with comments racist comments of that people made in the local area. So they would talk about like the main street that was near our studios or, you know, uh -huh. they even talked about the place where I, the cafe where I worked before graduate school. And then I had the timestamp, which would say how recently they had said it. And so the last few pages, it says a day ago, just to show how um, current you know, the statements were. These are things that you, you heard yourself. These are things I saw online. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So like there'd be a blog post that was made and then there'd be a comment section underneath. And then it was just like full of racist comments. And yeah, yeah. now that doesn't seem so shocking, like, you know, but back then I think a lot of people had this idea like, oh, that's the past. And, you know, they, they, a lot of white people hadn't seen that, you know, they just, maybe they had a racist grandpa or something, but like they didn't have people talking like that around them yeah. and they weren't the people who were going on these blogs. So it was just like a shock to some of them. Yeah. So something that I didn't really think about, but you mentioned is sort of like you used the questions that these people would ask you that they were interested in to then allow you to talk about the things that you were interested in. So are you sort of tired then of talking about your, your I guess, your belonging and where you're from? No, I want to feel like I don't have to do that, okay. but I'm not actually tired of it because I'm really interested in my ancestors and in the stories and the like I recently read the book Homegoing by uh, Gayasi, okay. and it's a chronicle of two sisters and how their lives diverge. So it yeah. starts in Ghana. One of them is taken to the U.S. and the other one stays in Ghana and is part of a slave owning family, a capturing family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like I'm interested in all the little nuances and the things that come up when I talk to my dad about family history because he's yeah. he knows like oral family history and you know, like for instance his grandfather spoke German because at some point Togo was a German colony uh -huh. or his father you know served for the for the queen and king of England as a soldier and traveled to different parts of the world during World War II uh -huh. to fight on behalf of, of Britain, Great Britain. Wow. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of I'm still really interested in that personally for me, because I think there's a lot of a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess now I, it's not so shocking if somebody asks questions about me because I'm, I'm used to it now. Yeah. 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 Where are you from? And all those questions. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that I feel like that sort of comes across in your work in, in a lot of different ways, sometimes like in your face and sometimes subtly. And I kind of like the way that you play with that back and forth. And like one of the pieces that I was really drawn to were your, I guess, cloth fabric pieces. I'm not sure how, how kind of how you classify them. And then I was curious, you know, could you talk more about, you know, those pieces? I think they have a really interesting history. And yeah, and then the, that process of, of finding these materials. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in the history of wax because there's a lot of materials that I explore that are considered authentic. And whenever someone uses the word authentic, I always find it dubious because I don't think there's anything 
Yeah. That's authentic. Yeah. So this question of authenticity is interesting to me. So like people will call wax print fabrics, African print or African fabric. Yeah. And it's, you know, so strongly identified with Africa that unless you know the history, that's just where people think that it originates. So when I found out that these cloths originated made process in Indonesia that the Dutch were trying to copy on an industrial mm-hmm. scale, yeah, even ended up marketing it to Africa. Um, and to this day, you know, the biggest wax print producer is still in the Netherlands. Um, oh, really? Still, yeah, like the most prestigious brand. Oh, uh, okay. And they have all these <laughs> prestigious, these yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like the high, highest, highest quality. Yeah, and even yeah. even some of the companies in in West Africa are owned by them. So you might think you're uh. buying. You know, it'll say made in Ghana, but it's still owned by Blisco. Uh, but then also learning about the different stories of different fabrics and the way that you can wear a certain pattern to say something to your community about yourself. Yeah, That's what got me interested in creating my own. When people see fabric, they're so used to seeing all kinds of patterns and things. And you it's a way to hide a message or to disguise it or to speak to a specific audience. So I play around with um, titles that will give people a hint into what I'm trying to say. And then yeah. some people, of course, will just take a selfie in front of it, not even yeah. twice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, add a, and add a hashtag. <laughs> yeah, and not mention the artist. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I really, I didn't quite know that full history. I know when I visit Indonesia, like I learned about that whole, you know, the colonial history of the Dutch with Indonesia, which is, you know, really messed up. And also like it's all these batik, you know, dyes and clothing. And so then when I kind of learn more about, you know, what you were doing with it. I thought that was like this whole interesting, you know, history and you're talking about appropriation and, or, or you know, as, as you're calling authenticity, I think it's like a really complicated sort of topic, especially in this present day when everyone's trying to figure out what is authentic or another word for that would be nationalistic or, you know, whatever that means these days. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think about it a lot in terms of, I think, I'm not sure if, if you, how you feel about it, but like, I think with the internet, this idea of authenticity is sped up so quickly that I'm not even sure it's the same thing, you know, and, or maybe it is, maybe it's not, I'm not sure, but that's something that I think a lot about because like the history of this sort of dying happened over many, many, many years, you know, decades, but then now you can just sort of literally copy and from one day to the next. And so I think that sort of changes things maybe, or maybe it doesn't. I'm not sure what you think about that. Yeah, I, I do think it changes things. I think it allows for a quick outrage to happen, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. where, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where if, if you had to have like a camel carrying cloth across the desert yeah, yeah. from one, one place to another, those kind of things don't happen because you don't have that interaction with the people who made it or the culture that it comes from. But yeah. now someone who's from a particular culture can see someone wearing something that has cultural significance to them and in a way that doesn't talk about it, doesn't give any credit to it. Yeah, yeah. So it's easier to find fault wearing or using elements of other people's culture. Yeah. And then I guess, and then sort of moving on from those pieces, I know you also, you know, did a piece kind of, I'm not sure, commemorating or talking about, you know, Obama uh, with the indigo dye. And I was curious, maybe talk a little bit about that history and how the batik kind of shifted over to indigo or at least the relationship between those two and the cloth dyeing. Mm -hmm. So that's another instance where I sat with something for a while and then years later, I was like, okay, this is the form that it has to be able to talk about this. Yeah. So in 2008, me and my sister were watching the election results come in and we were alone together sitting in front of a a big window behind us. And when they announced he was president, we looked at each other and screamed in excitement, but then we both immediately ducked afterwards. And so... Like we both were sitting on the couch and we just both ducked oh, as, okay. as, if someone, yeah. as if someone was going to shoot us. 
Uh-huh. And then we were like, why did we do that? And so we'd always be talking about that, like, why did we duck that time? So weird. And there was this kind of atmosphere of fear, like there's no way that that the U.S. is going to allow a black president to like survive a term or mm-hmm. just pictured an assassination or something. And, and somehow that translated to our bodies in that moment. Just that fear. Yeah. So I had been working at the front desk of St. Louis Art Museum, and in the basement on display was an indigo clock from Nigeria. Adire is the name of the type of clock, and it depicted King George and Queen Mary of England. Uh-huh. And the process for making adire is like a stencil that is made using the bottom of a tea chest, which, okay. you know, so like these tea chests that would come from England and they would use the metal, metal bottom of the chest to cut a stencil and then use cassava paste to kind of squeegee through the stencil okay. to make the design. And yeah. then it's placed in an indigo bath and the cassava starch resists the dye process. And so mm. those areas are light blue and the rest becomes dark blue. Yeah. And so I was thinking about commemorative clocks and the format of them and how there's this central oval with whoever's being commemorated inside it. Yeah. And then the text at the bottom, because when I worked at the desk, we one of the activities that we were allowed to do without any kind of like being considered slacking off was researching items in the collection. And so I would sit there and look at the history of different objects and whatever information was available. And the text on the bottom, nobody could really say what it said. It's just thought to be some kind of proverb. Okay. And so I made my own commemorative clock. And so I did it in boutique just because that's the process that I know how to do. It's a die process. And the text was just explaining that moment when me and my sister mm-hmm. felt threatened. And then I changed all the symbols and the objects in it to have significance to either like a U.S. identity. So there's a bald mm-hmm. eagle, liberty torch, and stars and stripes. And then elements of my identity and Obama's identity. So there's like the flower of Indonesia, if you live there, and the state flower of Hawaii. And then there are also elements from kente cloth, which is like a strip woven cloth from Ghana. But there are two different ethnic groups that make kente cloth. And my father, and therefore me, is where Ewe, in Ewe kente cloth, there are symbols more like animals and um, people. And so two of those symbols that I've seen are elephants and crocodiles. And so there's a proverb that says something like no one gets wet following the elephant through the bush. So basically that airship that clears the path for the smaller animals to follow. And the crocodile doesn't drown no matter how deep the water. So then (laughs) I (laughs) I put those symbols interspersed with other symbols. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, these pieces have so many different layers to it when I'm reading about it, hearing you talk about it. And what kind of reaction do you kind of want from an audience in trying to figure out all these different levels of meanings and storytelling? Mm -hmm. And maybe these are things that think about too much in the sense that I know like this idea of like an audience is sort of like an art audience is sort of this idealized, non-actualized person who doesn't or sometimes I think of the audience as simply the artist but I'm just curious yeah maybe you know do you make the pieces for yourself or is there something there that you want the audience to be or to take away from this given the complexity of the work I mean sometimes my work is specifically made for a particular audience like when I had an exhibition at the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis it was made for St. Louis and a lot of the topics that I was covering had to do with my experience of living there and the history yeah. of the place. And sometimes I literally will make a piece for one person. You know, something somebody says something to me that unsettles me and I don't in the moment know how to address what they're saying, the, ra- yeah. the racism or the ignorance. And so it's addressed in a work to the point where 
at my exhibition opening, one the person who I'm like, there was one piece that was made for one person, and he came up to me and was like, uh-huh. uh, he's like, I, it, I didn't, I didn't miss it, <laughs> or something like that. He's like, I, I, <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. So in, and sometimes I think also sometimes the people who say things that are racist or ignorant to me are people that I, a lot of times are people that I respected or respect and it's heartbreaking. And so it's kind of like an indirect way of having someone confront the way that they hurt people with what they say or what they do without like yelling at them in the moment. Yeah. yeah. But I, I totally know what you're asking me. Like basically a lot of people ask me this, you know, there's all these layers and things that I say about the work, but then when you see the work, how is someone supposed to have a window into that? And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that artists have. And I think a lot of times how that conversation happens is when other people care enough about your work to write about it or to study it or to hear you speak about it. But I try to give some hints with titling. Um, You know, if someone was really curious about something, they could Google certain themes or topics or or titles and learn more about it. And also, I really wanted to have a catalog for my exhibition at that museum. And the museum wasn't going to make one, so I made one. And I oh, found nice. people that I wanted to write about my work and just created like a small catalog. Yeah, that's smart. I still don't have any catalogs. I've heard, I think there's, I've heard like the really cynical saying, like if, if someone didn't review your show, it didn't happen. And if you didn't have a catalog, it didn't happen. Sort of. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> I, I, you I mean, you I, know those people who would say that, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's assuming that the work only lives once, you know, like it only yeah, has, yeah. yeah. And there's, that's not always true. And the work can also be bigger than itself. Like if you have photos of the work and you talk about it, like I've talked about works that I've never shown and mm-hmm. had great conversations about it. So I don't think the work in and of itself has to be the end. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's why I don't have any catalogs at the moment. But yeah, I mean, I think part of why I think I'm interested in your work and also talking to you about it is, like you said, like the explaining of it. I think there's a life and history to it as you talk about the work. And that's always been the case, right? Especially as, you know, whenever you decided conceptual art started or, you know, all these different kind of small art movements, right? They all have these sort of history that you kind of need to talk about. And that kind of enriches the pieces and the artwork and whatever that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, I believe the piece that you're talking about in St. Louis, that was um, Ballast. Is that, that was the installation that you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I saw that, you know, on your website and running off what you just said, just the talking about it kind of allows the piece to grow. And I think just based on the images, I wasn't able to fully grasp all the different nuances. And, and uh, you know, I know there's like a video there, there's some soft sculptures, there's more of your cloth paintings. And, you know, I was curious if you could talk more about how you arrange all those different objects and also different materials, you know, as an installation, it felt like, you know, this really multidisciplinary sort of installation that was, yeah, that I wish I could have seen. So I was wondering if you could Tell us more about it. Sure. Yeah. So I am a fan of picking a material that makes sense for the idea. Yeah. And so sometimes if you want someone to have an internal dialogue, then a book is perfect because they are, you know, you're reading in your own head and you're, you're having to absorb things that way. Sometimes a video is best. And when it came to the exhibition Ballast, the title actually comes from learning that trade beads, which is another thing that is associated with Africa, but has origins in Europe. They were A lot of these beads were created in Venice, and then they were brought in such large quantities on ships that they were used as ballast. 
And so I was thinking about like the heaviness of that and what they were exchanged for was human bodies. And then the human bodies would become ballast. And it's like, these are all things that are kind of literally under the surface, right? like under the surface of the water, but also under the surface of these objects that we think of as decorative. I grew up playing with beads that my mom had brought from Ghana and not thinking, uh, not knowing, having no way to know about the history of them. Just even learning that they were European was surprising for me because in my mind, I, I associated them with Ghana because that's where they came from. Yeah. And so much like the wax print cloth, there's some kind of history of exploitation tied to this decorative object that is used to adorn the body. And so I wanted to create something that made that connection to its history. And so soft sculpture is in the form of a necklace, giant necklace. But then at the same time, the scale is closer to being like a buoy in, in the water. Mm -hmm. And so another element that I incorporated into that exhibition was the brass bells that are based on Bronze Age instruments from Ireland. And I had seen them in, a, in the National Museum of Ireland and and there was not much information on them. And that's usually what happens. So there's not enough information for me on the wall uh -huh. thing. Uh -huh. And I'm like, what, what is this fascinating object? What, is, what was it used for? I just want to know all there is to know about it. Yeah. And it was really hard to find anything. Basically, these crotal bells were used. It's thought that they were used by Druid priests to repel ghosts. Uh -huh. And so I was thinking about how these objects like wax print cloth, trade beads, have ghosts behind them. And even in my patterns, like one of the pattern has a kind of this clansman like figure hidden in it, but it's colorful and you can, yeah. the way the colors work, it gets pushed back and then the background gets pushed forward because it's, it's red. And so I wanted to have this wall of bells to repel ghosts and people could ring them before they entered the space. And then the title uh, to repel ghosts comes from these Basquiat paintings. And so sometimes when you learn about the history of something, you start to see connections. And so I had learned that a certain type of blues are used on porch ceilings in the South to repel ghosts as well. And the mm. idea is that ghosts will approach your house and they'll see the blue um, roof on your front porch and they'll bypass your house because they think it's the sky. Oh. And so these um, Basquiat paintings that I had seen, they were blue and they just had the text to repel ghosts. And if you don't know anything about that history, it's just what does that even mean? But knowing I had been like at that point, I was really interested in the history of indigo and the color mm -hmm. blue and um, traditions around it. And so then that was one of the uses. I thought it was perfect for the rest of the work as an entry point. Yeah. What was the video that you ended up showing with those works? So there is this short period of time in which I managed to be in Amsterdam and Accra within a few days. So I was in Amsterdam with my mom and I was thinking about the connection between the Netherlands and Ghana, where the Dutch had been in Ghana for 300 years. Really? And what? Yeah, 300, 300 years, actually more than the British. And to think about like what influences they had on, on Ghana, you can't visibly see a lot of those in Ghana, but in the, in the Netherlands, you can. You can see all the historical jewelry that's made out of gold. Um, you can see the slaves in paintings. You can even see the, there's this, like there are these slave castles yeah. and the religious really fort on the shore, on the coast. Uh -huh. And in a, in a painting I saw in a museum, in Amsterdam, you see one of those forts in the background, just like the background setting for this colonial dude in his regalia. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, then a few days later, I was actually in Ghana. And so it was, I had filmed uh, street scenes in Accra and in Amsterdam. And I was in, when I was in Ghana, it was actually for, a, it coincided with the funeral of my aunt. And okay. so there's like, 
videos of uh, family members dancing at the funeral because it was a big celebration of her life. So just this clash. And there's a scene where like a fisher fishermen are pulling nets from the sea. And then there's another scene where it's just my, my family was in a van just moving through the city. And my nephew was exhausted from traveling around all day. And he said, Mom, is there anywhere I can lay down fully? Because he just wants to lay like completely down. And yeah. she just says, she abruptly says no. <laughs> and so so that's the title of the, the video because, you know, I was thinking about that idea of laying down fully and feeling like you can relax and somewhere is, mm. is your home. And I don't have that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's the title of it. I mean, this is something that I thought a lot about too, is sort of like, I know how important traveling is to you. I mean, you've been figuring out ways to travel right after undergrad and finding these like visa situations, which I never knew about, you know, to, I know you've done a lot of um, residencies around the world. And so I was curious, like, you know, how do these residencies kind of tie into you know, your ideas of home and belonging? Do you see these mm -hmm. travels as a way to find a home or maybe you've given up maybe this idea of finding a true home? I mean, these are things I think about as well. So I was curious how you view this idea of traveling. Yeah, I've given up on, on any idea of finding a place that feels like home. I mean, uh -huh. maybe it'll happen someday, but travel has definitely informed my work a lot because I think when you travel, you're put in confrontation with who you are versus how you're perceived in a different place. And I always say that I feel the most American when I'm outside of the U.S. Because in the U.S., my, yeah. my, belonging, yeah. my, my belonging is constantly questioned just because of my name almost, you know, on a daily basis when not now because COVID, I don't go anywhere, but Normally, if someone, oh, that actually happened today. So I made a doctor's appointment and uh -huh. the, the receptionist was like, Where's your, how do you say your name? And I've never heard that name. So it just is the type of thing that comes up every day that kind of places me. It's like a confrontation where somebody wants to know where it comes from. And so somehow I'm like, even learning Spanish, someone asked me, oh, I've never heard that name before. And I was like, I wouldn't have expected you to. It's not an English name. And then they're like, oh, where is it from? And yeah. all this stuff. So um, I like that feeling of uh, as supposed, like I'm supposed to be a foreigner mm, when I'm, mm -hmm. I'm abroad. And then what does that look like? And then just encountering all these traditions and objects that used to have cultural significance in these places and now have become just museum objects that are decorative. So that's one of my interests. Like when I went to Iceland and you go to a turf house museum and there are all these objects that people use on a daily basis and they're no longer don't have any uh, cultural significance in daily life now. So, I mean, something that I've also thought about when I'm traveling so much is like, you know, is finding a space for your work important and also is developing the work also over the long period of time a concern for you? Or maybe, you know, you're more interested in this constant sense of discovery because for me, I've, I've had some trouble in the sense of like, yeah, these are great opportunities to travel, but a lot of times I end up with work that is may not have a place to be shown or mm -hmm. I'm in a place for too short of a time for me to sometimes make any sort of real discovery or I'll look at the thing and be like, eh, I, it, sort of a discovery, but I'm not sure how big of a discovery it is as someone who was just here for a month, two months. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, right now I'm living, I lived in Germany for a year and right now I'm living in China and I'm, I'm, I'm realizing like it would take a lifetime to, to really feel like kind of digging somewhere that is not just surface level, you know? Right. Yeah. I totally get what you're saying. Like the, the work we've been talking about 
entirely has been work I did three years ago or earlier or later. And like you say, the work that I've done since I've been traveling a lot, it's not that it's not, I wouldn't, I don't want to use the word cohesive because I don't think my work in general (laughs) is cohesive. I don't, um, I don't know what I don't know what that means. I feel like that's like this idealized grad school or art critic talk to have a cohesive yeah. work. What I mean is like when you see someone's work and you know it's theirs. I don't feel mm-hmm. like that my work does that. Has mm-hmm. that kind of recognizability. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like a bunch of bits and pieces, like ideas that I started, but then kind of you know when you leave the place, maybe they don't feel as relevant, or you're like, oh, what am I? What was I really doing with this? <laughs> So I do have a lot of bits and pieces. There are things that I really like that I made, but then like you said, there's no where to show them. They haven't been shown. And so I don't even put them on my website a lot of the time. Yeah, it's definitely an issue. I don't know where the balance comes from because I think if I was always in one place, I wouldn't have all these interesting ideas that I think I've been able to have. But at the same time, the constant moving around and that kind of psychological thing that you have in the back of your head where you know that the work doesn't have a place to go and you're going to have to move it, you know, so like it prevents you from making work that's big or that's heavy or like maybe an installation would be too much because it's just like too much material to be shifting around the world and storing. I know that feeling. Yeah. And I built some of that like into my work, the cloths. I, I wanted them to be cloths because they're referring to cloths, but at the same time, they're also very easy to fold. Yeah, put in yeah. A, put in a backpack, so, and they're light. Yeah, you can have a whole exhibition in a small bag. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. One thing that I was thinking about you—you you never really mentioned this. I didn't know if like your cloth pieces. I don't know if you are also referring to the history of cloth and cotton when you're using those cloths, or maybe that's sort of implied, or maybe you don't think about it too much. But that was something that I've been thinking a lot about when I was, you know, since you're talking about these histories and these authenticities and materials, Mm -hmm. which are so important to you. Yeah, I definitely think about that. Like, for instance, with the indigo cloth, the whole, you know, if you look at it now, if you read about it, it's it's a Nigerian tradition. But this tradition came out of a relationship with a colonial ruler and the ability to squeegee onto cloth comes with the cloth being smooth enough to do that. And so okay. that comes after the cloth, cotton cloth is made industrially and it, it's not hand woven. It's not a hand woven texture anymore. It's smooth enough to do the stencil technique. The stencil itself comes from uh, an imported product. And then the people depicted on it are also people that are in, in the UK. So I think I'm definitely like the history is all embedded in the fabrics embedded in the work just by the possibility for them to even be made Mm. like industrially produced cloth allows you to do something different right so you couldn't have done the indigo dyes without it being industrialized you mean no you could definitely do indigo dyeing but the stencil technique came about when smooth cloth was available Mm. i see i see i see oh and so i was part of this exhibition in kansas city at 50 50 and it was all flags all of the artists in it were making flags Uh and i made one that had because indigo was one of the major crops that was grown in the slave trade like the conditions in the u.s south were perfect for growing indigo and there was a huge demand around the world like we don't think too much about being able to have blue clothes now because yeah yeah but there was a time when that was just for the rich or you know so when it became more accessible thanks to slave labor then you start to have it become an everyday object and so I made a flag that the stars were made using a resist technique like I tied chickpeas into the cotton and then indigo dyed the star field for the flag 
And then um, tobacco was another product and cotton. So the flag already is cotton. So I'm making the American flag, but with all these exploitative, these materials that found themselves in these exploitative processes. Yeah, yeah. I love all those different layers, these works, especially as you keep talking about it. And yeah, I've always tried doing that with my sculptures. (laughs) And I don't Mm -hmm. know if I succeeded as as too often. I think I kind of gave up for that reason. (laughs) Oh, no. For now, I don't know. But kind of going back to this idea of traveling, I know COVID has shifted everything. And I'm curious, you know, were you able to remain productive under, I guess, lockdown or being held in place? Since, as you said, you you have this love for discovery and finding these new materials. And then also you're back in Tulsa. I know before you were traveling all over Europe and Tulsa also has its own, you know, complicated, messed up history. And so how how has that been? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I haven't been productive at all in the last year, but then I think about the things that I've made that aren't necessarily, they don't fit into my work easily, but that I've made. So like I did a podcast um, early on in the pandemic with my collaborator, Anna Ile for the National Museum of Norway. So that was like a major project that I did. And then I spent five months helping take care of my niece and nephew because we ended up in Portland during the early part of the pandemic. Uh And so we were teachers, you know, like until the school year ended and then caretakers for a lot of the rest of the time. And then since I've been in Tulsa, I decided to focus on something I've always wanted to do, which is to learn another language to a fluent level. And so... I spend every single day somehow learning Spanish. That's good. Yeah, not in an academic way at all, but in a more organic way um, through listening and talking. Some of the projects that I've been working on in my studio, I'm just like, I don't have the heart in it. Yeah, I feel the same way. Okay, I'm not alone. (laughs) Some some people have like churned out all this stuff and they feel great. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel the same way with you. Like I've been spending a lot of time learning Chinese and it's sort of like... Part of me feels like I should be working on things and I've been slowly ramping it up, but I've also been like feeling like I need to know Chinese. I think that, I mean, I think knowing Chinese would help deepen some of the aspects of the work that I'm interested in, in a new Mm -hmm. way. And I was like, I don't think, and doing the work now makes sense. Like, I feel like if the faster I learn Chinese or try to learn Chinese, the whole of my work can kind of maybe shift in a different way. I think you're absolutely right. And I think there's sometimes where I have these euphoric moments when I can understand, you know, now I can understand Spanish. So they're like, I'll be walking down the street listening to a podcast. And it's just about, I listen to this podcast with like one of those that's about anything. Yeah, it yeah. happens every single day. It's like a radio show. It's every yeah, single yeah. day. Yeah, and yeah. I talk about like adult acne and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, I'll be walking down the street listening to it and I'll just start bawling because I'm like so elated that I have yeah. into another world where I'm just even hearing silly conversations that people are having, but then also really deep ones like this podcast called uh, Radio Ambulante. It's through NPR uh-huh. and it's just like different human interest stories on the, around the one Latin America Yeah, and hearing about like environmental issues. And for instance, there was a, a man in Peru who went to study abroad. And when he came back home for a break, he saw that the places where he used to play as a child had been basically turned into like a toxic waste dump mm-hmm. and dedicated his life to changing that. And so just these stories that I might not be able to hear if I couldn't understand Spanish, especially people like I have some friends now who don't speak English. And so just even knowing that that's been possible in the past yeah. eight months is yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. I think it would be worth having a year, you know, where you didn't make as much work as you thought you should. 
if yeah. you then can speak Chinese and, and it totally changes everything for you. Yeah, hopefully. I don't know about that yet. My Chinese, I don't think is good enough to hear like a Chinese podcast, but I can hold the conversation longer than one sentence at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, and my grammar is shit and I still need to like expand my grammar and my vocabulary. But mm-hmm. yeah, and, and and speaking about podcasts, I know, you know, you briefly mentioned your podcast, Adelaide and Anna, and, you know, I heard... I believe the first and second season of that podcast. And um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting about, I think you describe it as, I guess, art art advice column. Mm-hmm. Although I guess you can talk about, you talk about other things at times as well. And um, how did that come about? And what you learn about podcasting, what you learn about yourself through podcasting and hearing your voice, <laughs> editing your voice and so on. <laughs> well, that, that's the worst bit. Yeah. <laughs> it started because Anna Ile. I was living in the Netherlands because my partner, Lyndon, was doing a residency there and it's for a year. So I joined him and she came partway through like six months into our time there or so. And she didn't know anyone and she was trying to get to know people. And she, you know, we had talked about things we had in common and she knew I was vegan. So she was like, you want to try to make seitan one day? And I was like, oh, sure. And she's one of these people that, you know, like people are like, oh, we should hang out. And then they don't, they don't really mean it. Like she's the opposite of that. She, if she says, let's do <laughs> let's do this. Like she means it. So we had been talking about how we love, like she loves advice podcasts and I love advice columns in newspapers. Like sometimes I still look at random little local newspapers to see advice that they give to people. And she was like, we should do like a podcast for fun. And so she set up this recording booth in her studio and she even painted signs and everything. And we would sit inside. It was made out of like old art projects that she'd cut up and Uh into a box. And so we would just, take questions from Google form that people uh-huh. could submit questions to. And so the questions were all over the place. The first season, they could be about anything, but it was from the perspective of two artists. And, you know, as, as women who are like in our mid thirties, I'm in my late thirties now, but we were in our, <laughs> we were in our mid thirties. Um, we felt like we were old enough to, you know, give some advice if, if needed. And then the second season we were invited by coast contemporary, which is an event in Norway. And, it was perfect because there were all these other guests there from around, mostly around Europe, and they were curators and organizers and union leaders. And so we would invite them to come to our cabin and then ask the questions that people had submitted and get advice. So, you know, things like people want to know how to get their first solo show or how to deal with sexism and racism that yeah. they face on working with museums. And so we would uh, have a conversation with different people. And then the National Museum of Norway, two of their employees were at this event and we had interviewed them and they invited us to do a third season for the museum. I don't know if the museum's open because of COVID, but it was originally scheduled to open, I think, April of this year. And so they wanted to have a year of programming in advance before Uh, the opening kind of like build up. So we were supposed to go to Oslo and record, you know, interviews with the staff there, but we wanted to express, like, we, we really made it clear that it's an advice podcast. So that means you're inviting us to give you advice. Yeah. And so we are like, what do you, you know, you're going to be a new museum and this is like a chance to not fall into the same traps that other institutions have all these years. So yeah. what advice do you need? And then we ask um, art students to kind of play with the hierarchies of who, who has a voice and as well as artists. But the, the staff at the museum, I guess they weren't explained, you know, it wasn't explained to them what exactly this was. So it seemed, <laughs> no. a lot of them seemed to be like trying to promote, they're like, it's great, you know, and trying to promote the museum instead of really being critical. Hmm. Yeah. 
the artists had them. I think the artists were the, were the most interesting parts of the episodes because they didn't have any kind of ties. Like they were right, right, right. Yeah, they were independent. They were not employed and, by the museums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you? I'm surprised you got that many questions on the Google form. I feel like if I were to put out a Google form, I wouldn't get any questions. You probably would. And <laughs> maybe you can also get them. Like we used to get a lot of them from Instagram too. Uh, you, put a, yeah. you put a little question box. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never done that. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you do? You plan on doing more more seasons for for the podcast? I think if someone invited us and it sounded interesting enough. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what was one thing that you really think that you didn't expect learning about yourself in doing that podcast? I, sometimes when I listen to myself talk, I sound so gentle and kind. <laughs> do you want? Do you want to be like a tiger? <laughs> I want to be a tiger. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, inside I am one, but then outside I, I people always say I'm really dip, diplomatic and nice. Yeah. But that's not how I feel inside. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we, we all have different sides to ourselves, right? So, um, yeah. So as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to talk about that I missed or that you want to kind of expand on? Um, I'm sure I'll think of it later, you know. No, it's all right. Uh, You know, again, like I'm so excited that I was able to talk to you. You know, I think, you know, for the listeners, this is sort of an interesting connection because I I was introduced to Adelaide via your brother, uh, Zechariah, who I also don't know. I've never met in person, but he and I both went to the same college, but we didn't interact while there, but we were also in the same dancing group but we didn't interact while there and it wasn't until many many years later that he was like oh yeah my sister's an artist you should talk to her I'm like oh okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's great I love these kind of connections (laughs) um where where can uh, people find you online uh my website is autolay.com and so that's my first name and then my instagram is jaggeday at jaggeday which is my last name is that on purpose that you have your website is just your first name and your instagram is your last name no, when I signed up for Instagram, some 12-year-old girl in the Netherlands <laughs> had, had already, your name? <laughs> already had my name. I was so tempted to write her and be like, you're 12. Can I, can I please have this name? That's mine. <laughs> That's yours. <laughs> yeah. You've claimed ownership over it. <laughs> but yeah, Jagade is unique too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it was you know they're both unique enough that you were able to claim the website for that name, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for chatting with me, and yeah, I you know hopefully we can meet in the future in the COVID list world and in a more vaccinated world, and um, yeah, I'm really excited to be yeah. able to see your, your work in person and seeing you know your work installed in whatever space that you're able to find when things open up. Yeah. Someone give me a show. <laughs> yeah. Someone give Adelaide a show. All right. Well, thank you so much. Adelaide. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Seeing color is recorded, edited and produced by myself. Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle SeeingColorPod. If you enjoy this show, 
and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.